We have a big, uh, big, big, wonderful night ahead of us. The weather is beautiful outside. We are uh, celebrating the glory of the Lord Jesus in here. And so tonight we've come together to, uh, to come back, to rally up, to remember who the Lord is, to remember who we are, and to go forward in that. So uh, tonight I, I want to just introduce myself first and say that my name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here at Matthias. I, I uh, oversee discipleship. And uh, I would say, first and foremost, behind that, that I am a follower of Jesus Christ myself. I follow Jesus. I have to fight harder and harder every day to stay close to him. Uh, some days uh, the battle is more difficult than others, but uh, in my life and in yours, from the very beginning to the end, Jesus will win one way or another. And so tonight, as you get together, as I come together uh, with you to uh, jump into the word a little more, to continue our journey in Colossians, um, I just want to say at the end of the day that God has your life in his hands, all of who you are. And so may we be more aware of who he is. So tonight as we, as we come together, I want, to, um, I want to begin by putting you in a place that if you, uh, if you drive, legally drive a vehicle, I, I have to preface that because I got a speeding ticket when I was 14 years old. Uh, my mother's here and she probably never appreciates me saying that to so many people. You get one big mistake, I think. That was kind of one of my big ones. Uh, I got a ticket. Oh, and I got into a car accident. That's why it was actually kind of a bigger deal. Um, okay, so wipe that away for a second. All of you guys who uh, drive, have a license, who, especially if you commute to work or to school or some drive that you make on a regular basis, it goes something like this. You, you get in the car. You have your same old familiar stuff. Maybe you've got your, your drink, your coffee, your Diet Coke, whatever it may be. You put it in the car. You get the station the way you like it, uh, get the AC, especially with it being a little warmer outside the way you like it, you begin to take off, you begin to drive the familiar route. You go down the same streets, you get on the same highway if you work farther away. You, uh, you may encounter the same traffic. Anybody encounter the same like gridlock every single day? And it, yes, yeah. Some amens I think actually were thrown out in there, yes. So um, you encounter the same routine. And you've done it so many times, hundreds, maybe even thousands of times in your life, that sometimes you may get to your destination, you get to class, you get to your job, uh, you get to wherever you're going to, and you put the car in park, and then you realize, I wasn't paying attention for a second of that drive that I just had. I mean, literally, you, you have that, like, come, come back to awareness moment, and you realize, I wasn't paying attention at all. I didn't, I didn't take into account the fact that I'm driving a vehicle that could harm myself and others. I didn't take into effect all that everybody else was doing, the, the factors, the wet, all these things. But we find ourselves in these places where, where things can become so ordinary and so normal that we almost forget what we're doing. Where the ordinary is something we get used to so much that, that we take it so for granted, we might as well not even be driving. We throw it into autopilot. Transition that uh, thought for a moment over into, over into your visual perception. I, I want to introduce you to a word tonight. This is going to be kind of weird. This is not like the heart way to start a ser uh, sermon, but, but follow me on this because this is going to track all throughout tonight. Um, I want to introduce you to a word. It's called a, a lemon. Now, it's not a lemon. It's not the fruit. And it's not a lumen. It's not a lighting unit. It's a lemon, L-I-M-E-N. And a lemon is a threshold line. It's a boundary. It's a, um, it's a place in which uh, the normal ceases. 
It's a place in which your reality, uh, it, it, like I was reading in Joshua today, and the Lord began to describe the boundaries of what they would have based on where the sun would rise and set, as far as the sun would rise kind of thing. That's, that, that is a threshold that he's describing. So there are thresholds all in your life. There's thresholds for pain. There's thresholds for time. Some of you guys hope that I stay within your threshold of time so that you don't start bouncing and moving around and checking your watches and things like that. But uh, Andrew, if you can put up this slide, I want to I walk through briefly uh, our, vision, um, our vision process. So if you look on here, you've got some words on here. On the bottom is this word subliminal. You guys have maybe heard this word before. Subliminal is, is a, a message or a thing, some piece of information that is coming in your way that is below your line of threshold, that's, that's flying under the radar. That you, you know, it's slight enough, you're not focused on it enough so that it maybe, it maybe passes by. You kind of take it in, but you don't even realize it. Uh, advertising and marketing is, is completely concerned with this. What can we actually sell you while you're not paying attention? While you're looking here, we're actually going to feed you all this stuff. And then pretty soon you find yourself at the mall buying this thing and you have no idea why you're buying it. So subliminal is one thing. Now, uh, that, that's, that's in your lower uh, liminal uh, threshold there. Uh, above the line is this word supraliminal. These are things that are maybe up over your head. Uh, next time somebody says something that is, you have no idea what they're saying, you say, man, that's just superliminal. I'm out of here. I'm, it's over my line. So it's information that maybe... Maybe you're interacting with in some way, but it's over your head. It's, it's, it's beyond you in some way. It's not below the line. It's above the line. Now, on either side is uh, your peripheral space or your periphery. Now, your periphery is made up of things like vision where you can see only glimpses of something. If you, if you actually uh, 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 do a little test here, just look straight ahead. However you're sitting, look straight ahead. If you move your eye as far as possible to the right and to the left, if you didn't know who you were coming in with, you may actually not know who's sitting next to you. Um, you're using things like your peripheral senses, maybe some of your ears a little bit and things like that to discern what is going on around me. Your periphery is not a good test of vision. It's actually mostly there to detect movement, what's happening around me. And then you begin to adjust your gaze. Now, what's in the middle here is this thing called, uh, we'll call it a liminal space. It's a space within the thresholds. It's a space that isn't, isn't underneath you. It's, you're aware of what's happening. It's, it's not over your head. You're, it's clear what's in front of you. Uh, sometimes, like the car ride, you know, like we were saying, our commute can go from a liminal space down to a subliminal when you actually stop realizing what's happening, okay? You're, you're driving a car, and this has become subliminal. That's very dangerous, okay? Um, but I put this up there um, to reiterate this point that what is normal? What falls within the liminal space? What remains ordinary? This, is, this liminal space is the place of comfort. It's the place where you see the things that you want to see. You actively make a choice to put certain things in your liminal space, in your tunnel vision, within the circle that you want to perceive. I think um, there's an invitation tonight. There's an invitation to realize that though the Lord certainly works in your comfort zone, in your liminal space, in your, in your tunnel of vision, there is so much more out there that neither you nor I can begin to predict. There's so much out there in which the Lord, if you follow from Abraham on down, he's continually saying, as a matter of fact, before that, you know, go. The command is to go to a place, go, and I will show you kind of when you get there. Um, to go out in faith, to step out in faith, to go out beyond the threshold, 
to the place that's uncomfortable, to the place that's unknown in so many ways. But that is the place, and we'll get to this uh, here down the road, that is the place where growth happens. That is the place where you're pushed beyond your limits. Now the danger in this is when we take the Lord and we take his work that can be way out there somewhere and really amazing stuff, and we begin to pull these things back within our comfort sphere, within our liminal, liminal space. When we take what God is doing and we take who he is and uh, the person and work of Christ and we begin to kind of squeeze that back into the mold of what is very comfortable for us. If you look at most types of churches, I would venture to say that most people will, will believe that Jesus looks somewhat kind of like them for this reason. He cares about what you care about. He uh, would dress the way you dress. He would come to an Acts 29 church if he you know, came back and wanted to like, go to church before he like, saved the world, you know. Um, there's danger in this because it's not that we can miss entirely what God is doing, but I think we can completely misunderstand and downgrade and downplay and minimize what the Lord is doing around you, what the Lord is doing in your life, and what he's inviting you to be a part of as a Christian, as a believer on mission in prayer. So tonight, um, I want to begin by asking this question, uh, what are you focused on? What are, what are you focused on? Some of you guys have had that subliminal driving experience even coming here. You know, what are you focused on? What are you thinking about? What are your desires? What, what's weighing on you? What was on your mind when you walked into the door tonight? We're going to talk more about what it means to be watchers on mission together. But I want you to begin to, to hope and pray that, that as we go through this night, as you walk out of this place, that you would have your eyes fixed on Jesus. And through that, from that place, that everything else would fall into its own right. That your opportunity in certain relationships, that other, other obligations and tasks and, and even the best of responsibilities that you have in this life would fall through the lens of Christ. So let me open up in prayer and then we're going to dive into Colossians. Father, I, I simply ask that your will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven tonight. I pray that you would share truth uh, that's so much bigger than me. I pray that you would... Uh, draw us together, unite us into the saving work of Jesus. And Father, help us to have faith that maybe you can call us uh, to something that is beyond the, uh, the, the normal, beyond the ordinary, that even the, the ordinary uh, can be redeemed into something very beautiful and very intentional. And so we know that you're working in mighty ways around the world. We know that you're working in mighty ways in this city, within this church, within each and every one of our own hearts. I pray tonight that you would make us aware more of what you're doing. Help us to cooperate and believe in that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. We've been on this journey for a couple of months now, and we are just about rounding the last corner. Um, there's been this amazing relationship that we've gotten to see, uh, we've gotten a vantage point into. Paul the Apostle has been uh, corresponding through this letter with the, with the um, Colossian church. It was planted by another guy, probably, uh, whose name was Epaphras, and Paul stepped in alongside him to, to write to them uh, concerning the faith that they have, to affirm them, to strengthen them, mainly in the face of certain heresies, certain teachings that contradict the gospel that they're facing. He's trying to equip them to be the church. And lest we forget, this, in so many ways, was a no-name location, an earthquake happens soon after this. The town isn't even rebuilt, but it's so insignificant. Laodicea and other, other places down the road were so much more commercially important. 
It's so easy for us to, to put on our scale of what's important to the Lord. This is an amazing letter that has given us tremendous encouragement. The old man, the new man, the, who we are in Christ, who we are together, the family unit. Mark did an amazing job preaching through the last three weeks of wives and husbands and parents and children that this Jesus thing affects all of us in these ways. This no-name church with this apostle whose life has been rocked and wrecked and completely rebuilt on the rock of Christ is what we get to dive into tonight. So from God's mouth through the pen of the Apostle Paul, we'll do, uh, we'll do these uh, verses. Um, in Colossians 4, chap- uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So let's put up verse two. Continue steadfastly in a prayer. Other versions may say devote yourself to prayer. Be committed to prayer. And when you look at a word like steadfast, it, uh, when you pull it apart, when you, you take two words that combine to make steadfast and separate them, Uh, you have two very opposite words. You have a word like steady, and you have a word like fast. Now, you tend to have uh, people be one or the other, okay? How many many fast people in here? When there's a need, you jump to it, we're quick to fix it. Uh, How many steady people are in here? Okay, I'm a steady person. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm always the right person, but I am very fixed in working through a process. Uh, I I was trying to book a hotel room a couple days ago for our family to go somewhere this fall, and I had like all the different comparison sites up. And not just one comparison site, I had like five of the comparison sites because I'm, but I really want to make, you know, I'm, I'm so slow to act. I'm so slow to make decisions. It took us a year to buy a car. I mean, it's things like this that happen because both myself and my wife, we tend to be slow people in how we approach these things. There's benefits to that. There's negatives to that. On the other side, there are people when they, uh, when, when they see a need, they're quick to act. They're quick to want to get involved they're quick to speak sometimes, maybe wishing that they wouldn't be so quick to speak. But the reality is they uh, are, are a blessing to others in which they intercede, in which they jump in, in which they want to get their hands dirty right away. Now, Paul begins this passage by saying to continue steadfastly in prayer, to be people who are anchored in Christ, to be people who are not rocked by the waves or blown around by the wind, but at the same time who are always like runners in a starting block, always like people who are ready to act. When the time is right, I will go. To continue steadfastly in prayer. And then he says, uh, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. To be watchful, to be uh, alert is another way that you can translate this, this word. To be alert in prayer, to be aware in prayer, in thanksgiving. Thankfulness is the best atmosphere of prayer. And I've experienced it in my life because the times in which I'm holding something over God as if it could ever happen. Come on, God, I'm, I did this. Now, come on, where, where's your thing? You know, like God owes me one. Or, um, or a place of pride. God, God, aren't you, man, you're so awesome, and aren't you so happy because of what I did? Because look at all these things that I did today, you know. God, I, did, I only looked at one of those websites to book that hotel today. Isn't that awesome? Don't you think I'm awesome? God, I gave, I gave to that homeless guy on the, you know, on, at the highway exit today. Man, aren't I awesome? 
you may not phrase it like that, but, but, but to be thankful, to realize that, um, that you deserve nothing but have been given more than everything in Christ. Every time you approach the throne of God through prayer is an unbelievable thing. What you begin to ask for, how you begin to even think about yourself and the world around you can begin to change when you bathe your prayers in thankfulness. Being thankful, Paul says elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5, be thankful in all circumstances for this is the will of God. It doesn't mean to ignore pain, but it means to be thankful because of who Christ is. Because of the fact that his truth is unchanging with the circumstance. So continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Jesus was a good watcher, to say the least. Uh, put up this verse in Mark 12, uh, verses 41 through 44. Uh, think about the watching components that are happening here. And he sat down opposite the treasury, Jesus did, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Imagine him sitting there and watching person after person after person. Please don't do this to the joy box afterwards. Um, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to, to, to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, uh, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. There are so many other instances in the gospel accounts of Jesus seeing a need, seeing uh, a lame beggar, seeing somebody who was afflicted with a demonic spirit, seeing all these issues come about, seeing somebody who is sick, and he's, he's quick to act, uh, and he's quick to, to heal. He's also quick to, um, um, to, stay, to stand his ground, to be steadfast, to be anchored in his father uh, when opposition comes. But in this moment, it's amazing, because I can imagine him sitting there and watching people, and, and even, even the people who are maybe even trying to be seen, you know, wearing, wearing nicer clothes, and almost trying to, like, clank their coins louder, you know, in the I don't know if anybody does this in the joy box. If your money clanks in the joy box, you're probably not like trying to make that known more. But here's the point is that it's, it's, not, it's not a matter of, of an abundance. It's a matter of the heart. It's amazing what Jesus is impressed by and it's amazing what he's not impressed by. But it says he stood back, he was watching carefully. And actually in the watching, uh, it wasn't an opportunity just to point out, just to finger point all the ways that other people were doing it wrong by themselves he actually took it as an opportunity to disciple his disciples, to teach them in this moment. In the highs and the lows, every opportunity that we encounter can, can become an opportunity to disciple others through, to teach others through, to train others through, to equip them in some way. Jesus was a good watcher. Uh, this is the first sermon where I've ever had 10 subpoints after the first verse. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, keep in mind your time threshold, but at the, t at the same time, there are 10 things that I have man, whittled, been chewing on these for a couple weeks. Ten things I think we can discern about watchers um, from Scripture, from other stories, and other things that we can interact with uh, as we learn what it means to be a watchful person, to be a watcher in prayer. So watchers, number one, are aware of who they are and who God is. Let's keep our perspective in the right place, right? I mean, it would do us well to just wake up and remember, God, you are God and I am not. You are the one who's sovereign, who created the world, who has no need of anything. I am the one who is in desperate, total, complete need of everything that you are. It would do good for us to remember as we're being watchful that God is the one who has the supreme power and not us, but he calls us to be watchful. Number two, watchers are observant of their surroundings. Uh, 
they don't just see what they want to see. You know, you ever tried to be observant of your surroundings? If you're only seeing things that agree with what you want to see, you're probably not seeing clearly enough. Because the Lord has allowed us to be inside a world that is a mixture of both brokenness and glory for his namesake. We're going to interact with things left and right as watchers, as watchful people that affirm our faith or, or things that, that we should critique, we should, that we should be very careful for, that watchers are willing to, to take in new things. Number three, watchers are overwhelmed by the need around them. I think it's easy to think that it should be the other way around. If I'm being watchful in prayer, then I should, like nothing should faze me. And that's, I, I think that's actually probably true to some degree, but I'll share this. In discipleship, in leading other guys on this journey uh, as we walk with Christ together, what actually drove me into a very much more deep, uh, de- desperate, dependent uh, prayer life has been recognizing the fact that the needs that others have around me are bigger than me. Because in my flesh, what I want to say is, well, if I could just orchestrate these details of their life, it would be easier. Or if I could just buy them the thing, it would make more sense. But the reality is, is that actually that overwhelming need driving me to prayer helped me to recognize that, God, you're the only one who can, who can actually change some of these things. You're the only one who can produce spiritual fruit in somebody. Your spirit is the only thing that can act in these ways. So I, God, I will sit in my place. I will act when you call me to act. But at the same time, your uh, amazing access you've given me and my brothers and sisters in prayer. Apart from that, I am completely overwhelmed. So it draws them, uh, these watchers, to prayer. Number four, watchers recognize the obligation of their privilege. So you've been in Christ. If you or a Christ follower, if you believe in Jesus, you've been brought through the looking glass. You're, you have access to privileged information. Anybody can read this, but you can actually understand this, that from beginning to end, you understand who uh, holds everything together, the way that all this is going to be rectified, the way that sin is going to be uh, finally vanquished once and for all, the way that it was completely disarmed on the cross of Christ. You are walking around with the most powerful, amazing, unbelievable, apart from the Holy Spirit, truth the world has ever known. But there's a privilege uh, and there's an obligation that comes with it. What are you doing with what you know, with what you understand? With this, not just information, this is the meaning of life. This is actually what so many other people are searching for out there. You and I, my friends, have it. Number five, watchers turn to God seeking his will in dependent prayer. So I said before that the need overwhelms a watcher. But the answer is not just to sit in this place of self-pity and somehow complaining that you're around people, yourself included, who actually need Jesus, right? Um, Watchers turn to the Lord, seeking his will in dependent prayer. For most of my early life, I mean, until I was about 24 years old, I prayed most of my life. But I realized when I was 24, I was going through a study, a Charles Spurgeon study with Mark and a handful of other people uh, when I was in his law family. We were going through this prayer and spiritual warfare book. It was really unbelievable. It was awesome. Did it for a long time. And I recognized that functionally I was praying uh, every day, but realistically I was actually chalking it all up to coincidence. I was praying because I should pray, but I wasn't praying because I actually believed in what I was doing. I believed in God. I believed that I was supposed to pray, but I wasn't actually connecting the dots with the results of prayer and the prayers that I was offering to God. So turning to God, seeking his will in dependent 
prayer. It's not coincidence. It's something that you have access to, and at the same time, it's something that, uh, that we all um, have to be completely dependent upon. Because uh, there's no other hope. There's no other power that matches this amazing thing that we have in prayer. Number six, watchers desire to see uh, new things. So, again, not, not just wanting to see what they want to see, but are desiring to be pointed to new places, desiring to see new opportunities, desiring to see um, new truths about the Lord that they've never seen before in Scripture. Now, Matthias is, is somewhat of a Reformed church. I will actually indict the Reformed movement as being probably the worst uh, kind of people in the church for basically acting like we already have it figured out. Every last piece, because everything fits so neatly into our systems. Now, I, I believe in good theological systems. I believe in right teaching. I believe in all that kind of stuff. But the reality is, is that after you accept Christ, your job isn't just to backload into a certain theological system or doctrinal statement. There, there's more to go. There's deeper to go. There's, there's actually new places that we can uh, continue to learn and grow in. The Word is living and active. It never stops working on us. And as we change and learn how to see God more clearly, I believe the Word becomes more and more alive in our lives. I never, ever, ever want to stop learning in my entire life. I want to be a model of what it means to continue to follow Jesus, which means not just following him to the places where I guide him. Watchers desire to see new things, desire to see new things in people even around them. So an interaction with a school like Jefferson that we've just been involved in, we desire to see something that, that maybe they don't see yet. Maybe in the very beginning, only Mark was the one who saw it. But as this vision has caught fire more and more, uh, even people like the principal are getting glimpses of, of what this could be, maybe small glimpses. We don't even fully understand what God can do in a relationship just like that. And I promise you that God can do new things in yourself and in other relationships that are all around you. He's placed them around you for his purposes. Number seven, I, I promise you there's only 10. I'm not going to add more after that. Number seven, watchers ask good questions of God, others, and themselves. So watchers aren't always wanting to run into the middle of the chaos and stand up and be the talker. Watchers are very observant. God, I don't know, I don't know what you're doing in this situation. Can you help me? Can you show me? God, what does this, this pain or this struggle that I'm going through, what does this say about who you are? I'm struggling with this. I'm being honest with this. God, I'm, I'm asking questions because I, I desire answers. Asking good questions of others, about others. What does is, what is that thing that they just bought say a piece of maybe what they care about? What does the car they drive communicate about who they are? What, um, what is the way that they talk in public reveal about who they are? What is the way they dress reveal about who they are? What is the way that they responded to that, um, that terrible thing in pain say about who they are? As Christians, we don't do a good enough job asking, what does the way they celebrate say about who they are? Because we should be actually the best celebrators. An amazing thing just happened in their life, and why aren't they celebrating? You know, um, Asking good questions of themselves. Why did I just do that? What, what did that reveal about where I'm trying to find my own security and hope? Why, why do I want to sleep in? Why did I just spend my money on that? Go back and check your bank statement, check your account. I mean, why do I, why do I fill my time and spend my money and use my resources doing these uh, things that I do? Watchers ask good questions of themselves as well. Um, number eight, 
watchers are thankful for God's yes and no. And I'll say this, not asking and receiving a no are not the same thing. You may get a no in different, different ways. You may, you may get an audible deal. That's, that's fine. Uh, you may, like, like me, I often just try to discern after the fact, is that, was that God, uh, was that his will that, this, that I did this or not? I can usually see based on what kind of fruit comes out of it. Um, are thankful in all circumstances, are willing to go back. If you actually did this like over the next few days, try to go back and just think to yourself, what are all the doors that the Lord didn't open that I can only now begin to appreciate? So watchers are thankful for God's yes and God's no. Number nine, watchers tell their stories. This is an amazing one. There, there's a tribe in Zambia called the uh, Ndembu people. It's always amazing, an amazing name when you have an N and a D right next to each other. Uh, Ndembu people, okay? This is a, a tribe very typical to that region in southern Africa. And there's this ritual that happens every year. So the village is set up where you have men living on one side, adult men on one side, and women and children living on the other side. And on an annual basis, at a very special time, the elders of the village come over to the female side of the village in the middle of the night and rally up all the 13-year-old boys. That's a very traumatic experience because this is in the middle of the night for one. But imagine your 13-year-old boy all of a sudden being taken out of your house or your hut, whatever you may live in, and, and rallied up, and the group of them are brought out into the bush, the wilderness. And out there, the elders look to this group of, of young men, soon-to-be young men, and they say, um, this over here, pointing over to their tree of meeting, they said, this is our tree of meeting. We will come back here in a month, and we will pick you up. And they wish them well, and the old men... Scamper on an old man style back to the village. Now, you can imagine what's happening in this, in this group of 13-year-old boys. If you guys ever seen Lord of the Flies or read the book, this, I mean, it's something like this. What happens in the beginning is they all, they all scamper off into their own little deal. They all uh, individually stay together alone, isolated, because they're just trying to process what just happened. <laughs> I'm 13 years old. I just was eating pudding, and then I got brought out here into the bush. What's happening? I don't have any idea what is happening here. But what begins to happen is that these uh, boys begin to come back together and form a band, uh, to form a, a team, a band of brothers kind of thing. And they figure out who's strong, who's weak, who has different skills. What, how can we all figure out how to do this together because we can't do this on our own, separated from each other. And then this is amazing. The elders come back out and they pick up uh, those who are there. Hopefully they're all still there. And they bring them back to the village. And then on the male side, this is really a rite of passage. This is, um, this is their ritual, their, their rite of passage, um, where they sit around a campfire. And then they ask the boys to tell the stories of how all this worked out. So you have the boys telling these, these crazy stories, you know. Oh, we got chased up the tree by this tiger. We didn't have any sticks, so we had to urinate on his face to make him go. I just, we'd... <laughs> Man, we... we Oh, I remember when you, when you broke your ankle, your, your ankle trying, to, trying to kick that thing off. Oh, that was so funny. That's not, that's not that funny anymore. <laughs> they begin to tell these stories, but then actually what happens, and again, this is an annual thing. What happens is that the old men begin to turn to one another and say, Oh, you remember when we, uh, you remember when we were out in the bush and we did this? You remember when so-and-so you know, fought that out? You remember when he stole your canteen? Or, I don't even know if they have canteens, but it's, 
like they begin to tell their stories and they begin to relive these stories of adventure and growth, being in a place that is absolutely uh, crazy, but it's in that place of chaos. Uh, this, uh, an anthropologist named Victor Turner called this liminality, this place of growth in the threshold, in the place where they're pushed beyond who they are. I think that's discipleship. I don't think you have to disciple your people by pushing them out into the bush and taking, you know, releasing tigers on them, but it's in that place of the unknowing. It's in, the, it's in that place of uh, if, we, if, we, if we fail at this, uh, it will hurt. If we fall, it will hurt. The pads are off, you know, kind of thing. That's a place of growth. Um, in addition to, to, to telling your stories within the context of community, I, I would encourage you to, you may not all be journaling kind of people, but find a way to record what you're asking the Lord. Not to like hold it against him, but to begin to track the journey of his faithfulness. It's an amazing, wonderful thing. And the last thing, number 10, watchers grow in faith together. Watchers don't watch alone. You see Jesus sending his disciples out two by two early in the Gospels in this way. You see Paul taking Timothy as a disciple, but also as a companion along the way, Silas as well. Um, You see Priscilla and Aquila, a man and woman, uh, teaming together in ministry in in the book of Acts in the same kind of thing. Watchers don't watch alone because in doing this with other people, you remember it's for God's glory and not your own. Sometimes you need to watch out for the guy, for the woman who's right next to you as much as you do the mission out there. So watchers are who we're called to be. Okay, verse three as we continue on. Paul says this in verse three, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And in verse four, he says that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. We get a huge piece of context here. Remember, Paul is sitting in jail at least house arrest, maybe in a jail cell. He's, he's bound up, and he's writing this letter. He sounds like a free man to me. He's writing this letter as a free man in Christ in chains uh, to this church. And if you were in his position, if you're in a jail cell, what would you pray for? I mean, it's, it, I would be saying, hey, God, open the door of this jail cell so I can get out and go back to my family and get to eat chocolate ice cream and get to watch Netflix, and get to be around my buddies, and play with my kids, and go swimming, and all that stuff. We, we would love it. My wife would be in there too, please. She, she would be, I would want that. So please don't, don't assume I'm, don't, don't take too much by what I didn't say there. Um, but we get revealed right here, Paul's, um, Paul's theology somewhat, but also his, his priorities. Theologically, he's recognizing that, that all along the way, it's only God himself who can open up these doors. Now, when he says, uh, pray that, that God may open to us a door, maybe literally he's saying that God may open the jail cell door, right? Pray that this door would just come open. I mean, he's done more than that before. And in Philippi, the, the, he knocked the whole jail down, right? So, but he says, pray that a door may open. So at minimum, the jail cell, but surely even if that, he is praying for more and more doors to be opened, for more work to be done, for his, for his vision to be fixed on that which the Lord is doing around him, to, to participate in more, to see the gospel revealed, which is what he said here, uh, that, that the mystery of Christ, that he would be able to declare it, to reveal it, um, that he would be able to speak, enabled by the Spirit, as he ought to speak. Jesus says in Matthew 10, they're going to persecute you. They're going to flog you. They're going to bring you before the courts. But in that hour, don't worry what you have to say because it is not you but the spirit of your father who will speak through you. 
It will guide you in what you ought to say. Maybe some of you guys just need to remember that right now. You have opportunities. You have relationships. You have coworkers that you're struggling right now to figure out how should I speak around this person. My hope is that they would come to know Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? The Holy Spirit will guide you. But it doesn't mean, again, in the context of prayer, it doesn't mean that we're absent from the calling to plead to the Lord, God, show me. God, guide my word. Show me what not to say. Show me how to be a friend, how to be a comfort, how to bring your gospel comfort tangibly to this person. What do your anxieties reveal about your priorities? What do you lay awake thinking about at night? We all do it. What do you think about when you get up? What, what dominates your thought process? What distracts you from other people the most? What do your prayers reveal about your priorities? It's convicting. And what are you praying about? Am I, am I, am I praying, the thing that I talk about so much, am I praying about that? It's easy for me to talk about all these things of the Lord. Am I so quick to come before the throne of God and say, God, open up more doors. God, show us, show us one family that we can connect with at the pool party. God, help us to not just give backpacks and feel self-righteous about it. Help us to desire more in this. God, show me more of what it means to love my neighbor. God, show me more of what it means to care for those needy people who have different needs that you put in front of me for good reason whether it's finances or emotions or relationship, whatever it may be, God, show me that thing. It's easy for me to talk about that. It's another thing altogether to, to, to take the words before God in that. So, Paul doesn't stop there, though. He continues on in verse five. He says this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We'll stop there. We're always around outsiders. We're never not around outsiders. My assumption is that there are outsiders in here tonight. And if you are an outsider here, then praise God, because there's a way for you to no longer be an outsider. And when Paul says this word like outsiders, it can feel abrupt, it can feel offensive in some ways. I think some words you say are always meant to be said with an assumed meaning at the end, like, like they're left unfulfilled. If you say somebody's an outsider, you should be desiring that they would be made an insider that they would be welcomed into the fold of God. And we have to graciously remember that even as we sang earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, because uh, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. I was, I was given everything, but I'm so tempted to walk outside of this and to go out there. God, show others what it means to be welcomed, to be, um, to be blessed by being uh, in this fellowship. So Paul says um, to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Wisdom uh, just a definition for you. I, I, I believe wisdom biblically is skill in the art of godly living. It's, it's putting your theology to practice. It's not just talking about something. It's like wisdom grows. This is why life, uh, age, and wisdom can be synonymous with each other. It doesn't always have to be. But life experience and learning enough along the way can give you skill in this art of godly living. Paul says walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Um, remember that verse 2 has implications on all this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Walk with wisdom toward outsiders. It's so easy to want to put on some kind of a, a formula or you know, some, some kind of agenda, like a rhetorical scheme, like, like you're always just waiting for the one opportunity to say this one way, this one thing, this one 
this one line of how you say the gospel, that's what it looks like to share the gospel. No walk in wisdom with your whole life toward outsiders. Then he says in the last half of this verse, making the best use of the time. Some of you in here tonight just need to read this half of this verse, making the best use of the time. How is your time being used? How is my time being used? What are those things that you care about? Go back to the anxiety piece. What are the things that that we focus on, that we put in our liminal space, the things that we think about so often? And how does that work out within this whole grand scheme of how God is giving me time to use? Time is a limited commodity. This word here, making the best use, has a connotation in the Greek of also like, like buying back time, redeeming time. When you enter in, into a relationship and you know that time is limited, it changes your perspective. When you know you're only going to get so many days with a person, it begins to change how you, how you sift through time, how you, how you embody what it means to live in that opportunity. Last fall in October, um, just before the fall Ecuador trip, I had shared in a sermon about a friend that I had met, a friend named Ed. And I talked about him in a sermon on uh, what it meant for he and I to grow in a relationship together. I met him because he simply reached back out to the church. I, he had been at the church uh, a year or so before, and he simply had, had you know, just hadn't been around in a long time, but uh, this was his, I want to say, fifth or, or, or sixth reoccurrence of, of a different kind of cancer. And then he received the label that is like the most hated of all labels, terminal. And it is in that season that he reached out. And so, thankfully, Jason Serino passes me along his number, lot family leader in our fold, because that's where he had gone before. And I began to call Ed. And so I, I talked about this relationship last fall. I, it, it had only been like three weeks old at that point in time. So Ed and I would talk most of the time. We would talk most weeks. We would, I would pray for him without ceasing. I would go over often. The aim was to go over every week if possible and to come sit down to get time with him, to read the word, to pray together, to talk, to catch up, to have a friendship. And uh, on um, April 2nd, he passed away. Now, and it's, it's crazy because it's not, it's not surprising. I knew it was going to happen. I mean, you, you begin to pray in the beginning. I, I even told you guys before, like, I even was telling him, like, Ed, God can do a miracle. God can take this away. And he said, no, I, I, I actually am totally on board with you on that. But don't pray me out of an amazing job that I have with Jesus, like just on the other side right now, okay? Like, don't pray me out of a cush, awesome job with the Savior. Um, he, he said a phrase that was just huge on me. I said it at his funeral that uh, I want to be there fighting with Jesus in that last great battle. Sword in hand and shield. I will sweep up with a broom if that's what he has for me. But man, just to be standing there with Jesus. Now, from day one of that relationship, I knew it was going to end. I knew that our time was short. But the perspective on that time was unbelievable. Every time I'm going there, there there's hints of sadness. There was, there was sadness for sure, especially toward the end. I'm, I'm still like unpacking my own grief and like what it means that I lost my friend. But in every conversation, as he and I were praying, and, and my, my predominant prayer for him was, God, give him a strength in his faith until the end. Because there will come a day where his faith won't need to be strengthened anymore. He will see Jesus face to face. He needs no pity from me or you whatsoever right now. He's the one who's actually probably in this place where he's like, man, you don't even understand. You know? 
But I had a full recognition that this relationship, that this couple of months that I got with this man, and his whole death experience, as terrible as it was, was merely a stepping stone in his existence before the Lord. Time was very different. We weren't actually bound by this reality that, like, we knew the earthly time was going to be one thing. But time with the Lord is an eternal thing. And the, like, you, you, most people in my family don't, wouldn't speak the same language as, as this. I want to be careful in this because I don't want to bring any dishonor to my family whatsoever because I love them very much. Matter of fact, I think because I understand some things about, about God and about Jesus and about humanity and, and how much he values us, I think I, I think I understand value for them that, that some even don't understand themselves. But my constant prayer is, God, how do I represent Jesus around my family without turning them into projects while still seeing them as real people, right? Because they are real people, just like me. Um, and so as I have prayed so much over the years, God, for opportunities to share this gospel in some way. The Lord has given me funerals to do it. There's been so many people in our family who's died. I mean, just, just, just coinciding with my being equipped more in ministry through seminary and being on staff here at Matthias, people that I loved so much began to die. A lot of people. And it, it's easy on one sense to be able to say, man, God, why? <laughs> why? You know, like, why have you called me to do this? Come on, this is so hard. I don't like saying goodbye to these people. And it's so, it's so strange because I, I have this perspective that, that so many don't. Be thankful in all circumstances. Be thankful for the opportunities that he gives you. I think what he's given me in those opportunities to share with my family, to be there with them, to love them, to become more of a real person to them, um, I couldn't have ever asked for that. I'm glad he's brought me that opportunity. So Paul continues on here in verse uh, 6. He says this, Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Two things. They, their speech would be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Now, salt acted primarily in two ways for them. It was a, it was a flavorful agent. So speak in, in, in speech that is unique, that is flavorful, that is vibrant in a way that reflects the gospel, that is joyful because of what you have in Christ. Uh, let your light shine before men. Uh, don't hide it under a bushel. I'm gonna, I think I just combined like a song with a scripture. But, um, but that your speech would be flavorful. And at the same time, in addition to be a flavoring agent, a salt was a meat preservative. So speak in a way that is preserving, that is lasting, that is, that is much bigger than just today with those who are around you. Let your speech always be gracious. The opportunities that Jesus spoke of over and over again, when he's telling them the opportunities that await them were all hard opportunities. I'm sure they all wanted to say, you know, after Jesus died and, and rose and did his thing, man, we're going to set up this nice little palace in Jerusalem and people are going to come to us and we're going to have, man, we're going to like, God's going to give us money to do this thing and security. No, what he actually gave them were further outlying places beyond their, beyond their liminal space out into their unknown, in places where they would find hardship, in places where they would be opposed, in places where, where it would be tested, do I really believe in Jesus? It was, it was actually in those places before, uh, before peasants and kings and everywhere between that they would have an opportunity to testify to the grace of the Lord Jesus that bought their life, that means everything now. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know 
how to answer each uh, person. Answering isn't the same thing as propagandizing, as giving propaganda to somebody. If you think back on times like during World War II, there was such thing as Nazi propaganda where um, both the highs and the lows are ignored so that a message can be crammed into uh, public life so that people would be shoved, uh, would have a message shoved down their throat. It, it was a message that, that didn't depend whatsoever on the people. It was just, um, it was just a stock answer. It was a stock uh, piece of information that was given. This propaganda piece is what we're not called to embody when we give people uh, answers so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Is the hope in you tonight? Let me just ask that. Is the hope of Jesus Christ in you tonight? Theologically, yes, I'm sure you can say it is. Well, I know because I know this, these Bible verses that, that says it so, but is the hope in you? Is it driving and dictating and shaping the answers that you give uh, to others um, around you? It's not waiting for the, for the right opportunity and then you have like the gospel gun, you know, cocked and loaded, ready to like blow it up in the right situation, you know? I was at a funeral just uh, with, a, with a friend a uh, number of years ago, and these were all buddies growing up. You may be in here if you know uh, who, that I'm talking about you, wherever you are, man. Um, and, and I go hang out with these guys after the funeral. I said, man, so, so how was everything? He's like, man, it was, it was all right, but man, like this other guy, he was a friend of theirs who was converted, who, who became a believer. It's like this other guy just walked around passing tracks out to everybody. And now, I'm, I'm not going to negate how God uses tracks. Like, if God saves people through tracks, then praise God. But this is not being sensitive to a situation enough to meet them in the place of their need. You're not giving people, like, a textbook. You know, here, here's a book where you find the answer. Show them Jesus through your life. Be the answer. You can't be Jesus, but you can point them to the answer in Christ. So that you may know how you ought to answer each uh, person. How you answer can differ. The truth, uh, the answer itself, doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But how you answer can differ depending on where that person, where the other person is at. Think of a stranger, a family member, a friend, a coworker. I don't want to give my kids propaganda. I don't want them just to be able to say some lines and figure this out. I desire for them to be pushed into their own spaces as, as, as we journey with them so that they would learn to love the person of Jesus. There's nothing about him that we shouldn't want to love, that we shouldn't want to strive after and hope for and find grace in. The answer remains the same, but the, the delivery can look different. I'm going to give you some, um, some categories of, of friends of mine who I've seen uh, the Lord work in their life. A 56-year-old alcoholic who doesn't think he could ever change. Saved. Late 20s uh, or 30s, I should say, sorry. Actually, that's kind of a compliment. She would be happy. Um, A woman in her 30s who works at a mall. Converted. Like recently. This is an amazing thing. (laughs) It's an amazing thing when you see the Lord work in front of you. And And it's all impossible on the outset. You know, you don't think that it could ever happen for that person. You all have people in your lives that's like that. You guys have probably been that person for other people. They thought, oh man, that, that guy could, could never be, you know. God will never reach that guy. Yes, he can. A 31-year-old who doesn't think his past can be undone. That's a brother I'm praying for. 
He's so close, isn't he? Who has God placed around you to be, um, to be a light that shines on the answer of Jesus? I believe that every person walking on this planet is struggling with core issues of what is the meaning of life? Where do I find significance? Where do I have a place in this world? Where is their ultimate hope beyond things like death? Every single person who's ever been created is looking for ways to answer those questions. And my friends, we're gathered here tonight once again because we believe that Jesus Christ is the only answer that's ever been sufficient for any of those things. He is more sufficient than you have ever asked him to be for, right? He's always, matter of fact, the Lord has actually always given you more in Christ than you've ever asked for. He's been bigger than you've ever imagined, and he still is. Our good news is not that we can be better watchers, right? You can be like the best watcher ever. Get like awesome gospel specs and like begin watching really good and walk around with binoculars and look at the joy box and like see who's bringing them, you know, you can be like the most in tune watcher ever, right? Um, but that's still not the good news. That's still not our hope. Our hope is that Jesus, the great watcher, kept his eyes on the cross that was set before him. Check this out. In Matthew 26, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's the gospel. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. Right? You ever put yourself back? That's, that's where I would be. That's where I would be. My eyelids would have been too heavy. I would have stopped watching, but he didn't. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed welling, but the flesh, the eyes of your flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Jesus, the watcher, was persistent. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Our hope is rooted in the fact that he was faithful, knowing full well what he faced. The cross never caught up on Jesus. It, it never like surprised him. Jesus is praying in that moment because he knows full well what he's about to take on. He didn't do it. He, did, he didn't have to become ignorant about his task in order to do it. He didn't have to muster up liquid courage to go through with it. Jesus knew full well what it was and he bowed his head and he prayed three times, God, if there's any other way, I see it. I see it so clearly. You think that you see your sin clearly sometimes. Jesus saw your sin more clearly than you ever could in facing the cross. Um, but lest we be left at a place of sadness and being morose and grieving, Hebrews 12, 
One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Some of your versions will say, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. My friends, if you want to know the ABCs of how you live out this watchful Christian life, I want to give you two things. Follow Jesus and pay attention. The point is always staying close to Jesus. And staying close to Jesus. And then living our lives with him filling our liminal space, filling our perspective, filling, filling our tunnel vision. And at the same time, in us allowing ourselves to be pulled out of the comfortable place, to go to where he wants us to go, to be watchful, to be observant, to be willing to roll with the punches, to be willing to actually take the punches for the gospel. He will open up doors that we can't imagine and he will be more faithful whatever happens. I believe that the reason why so many of the disciples allowed themselves to be martyrs is because they believed in a hope that superseded this life. You can kill me, that's fine. I'm going to raise with Jesus. So my friends, um, for the Christian, there is no place for shame in the watching as you look upon Jesus, no, no need to keep trying to tally up and count up your, your list of sins. He saw your sin more than you can ever understand once and for all. As you press on, as you look to Jesus, only look in thankfulness and hope and grace because that's what he's given you. He's freed you so that you don't have to be ashamed anymore. And for the non-believer, for those of you who have yet to trust and give your life to Jesus, my only encouragement is to look to him tonight. I mean, I mean what are you waiting for? Make the best use of your time. There's, there's my, my, my greatest buddy in the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said there is the worst thing that you can do for a non-believer is to allow them to think that they have more time. Never allow them to think that they have more time. Always be gracious in your speech, seasoned with salt, preserving, speaking hope that you have in Christ, embodying what it means to live a life that supersedes all of this stuff, man. All of the best stuff and all of the junk. As we worship my friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fill your space with who he is. Allow, actually, allow your space also to be expanded to say, like Abraham, I will go. I don't know what's out there, God, but I know you are out there. And if what you said to Joshua is true, then I shouldn't be afraid or dismayed. Do not fear, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He will be with you and he will be with me. Let me pray. Father, we praise you tonight. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We ask for, um, God, we ask for eyes of faith, for faith eyes that are willing to see what you want us to see, for, for the willingness to be able to be used in situations that, um, that could be bigger than what we can imagine. At the same time, I pray for my friends tonight who their great battle, the great unknown, is within their own heart. I pray for those who have given up thinking that you could ever work in, in this area or that place or that piece of them. I, I pray that you would help us to be willing to take a step out in faith. Not an accidental step, not, not just a, not something that needs to ignore reality, but Father, is steps of watchfulness, prayers of watchfulness. God, make us more obedient in how we watch. God, increase our prayers. Increase our prayers, increase our dependency upon the work of Christ. Tonight, he is our hope. It's the same as any other night. Jesus Christ is our hope. He is that thing which we long for and the thing which we already have. Father, help us to never cease in being thankful for what we have in Christ.